and welcome to our podcast about ending gender-based violence in universities and colleges. I'm Ruth Lewis and I'm from Northumbria University in the northeast of England. And I'm Susan Marine from Merrimack College in the United States outside of Boston. Together, Ruth and I have been working on the problem of gender-based violence in higher education for several years. We've just published an edited book called Collaborating for Change, Transforming Cultures to End Gender-Based Violence in Higher Education. This podcast series extends the conversations in the book by talking with some of the authors and others about transformative education against gender-based violence. For more information on the book and the work we're discussing in this podcast, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com. Today, we're really delighted to have two guests who are going to talk about gender-based violence and activism against it in Indian universities. Their work doesn't feature in the book, but we thought it was so important we wanted to include it in this podcast series. They mention three important structures in the work against gender-based violence in Indian universities. Firstly, GCASH, that's the Gender Sensitization Committee Against Sexual Harassment. Secondly, ICCs, they are Internal Complaints Committees. And thirdly, the Women's Development Cell. So our guests today are, firstly, Geeta Chadha, who's in sociology at the University of Mumbai. Most of Geeta's academic work has been about feminism and science, but she's also published and been an activist in the area of gender-based violence in universities. And Geeta has also been a member of her university's women's development cell. And our second guest is Adrija Day. She's at SOAS in London, that's the School of Oriental and African Studies, where she is a British Academy postdoctoral fellow studying activism against gender-based violence in Indian universities. She's also a member of a campaign group called Account for This, which is dedicated to uh, addressing gender-based violence in universities. So a big welcome to you both. We're really delighted that you've been able to make time for this. Can we start off, please, with a question about where India is in terms of looking at gender-based violence in universities? As you know, in the US and Canada, they've been working on this since the 1980s. In the UK, probably since the early 2000s. Where are we in India in terms of progress in this work? I'll start by answering that and then um, I'll pass it on to Geeta. Uh, But in terms of looking at specifically legislation around sexual and gender-based violence in workspaces, we need to kind of start at the point of the Bhavri Devi case in India, which happened in 1992. So Bhavri Devi was a rural development worker and uh, she worked, she was employed by the government of Rajasthan. uh, And her job was to look at women, women's development, children's development. And as a part of her work, she's, tried to stop a child marriage happening in the village. And as a backlash to that, and to teach her a lesson, she was brutally gang raped by upper caste, upper class men in her village. What happened after that, it was a long drawn procedure. Bhavi Devi still waits for justice. But this led to conversations around uh, sexual violence in workspaces and resulted in the Vishakha guidelines, which came out in 1997 which was the first document which kind of laid out on how workspaces should address any form of violence, any form of gendered violence happening within uh, while women were at work. And so that was the first point when this conversation came to the mainstream and started. I'm sure it was happening in feminist circles much, much, much before that. But it came into the mainstream legal uh, discourse at that point of time. But at that point of time, it was also adapted by universities. So universities also started thinking about how you can address this within university premises. And this actually led to the development of GSCASH, which is the Gender Sensitization Committee for Sexual Harassment, uh, which we will talk about in much more details later. Uh, But just to kind of give you a brief history of how this, uh, how the legal, uh, larger legal framework developed, So Bhavri Devi was like one really important landmark in in terms of uh, legal development. At this point, we will move further to 2012, which was another landmark case of the Nirbhaya case, uh, the uh, 16th of December 2012 uh, gang rape, which happened in Delhi. 
Jyoti Singh Pandey was the name of the person, but again, according to Indian laws, we don't reveal the name of the, the survivor and there's a lot of, um, lot of debate around that. Uh, and the name Nirbhaya was given to, given to her largely by the Indian media. But Nirbhaya was a student. And what happened to her very organically generated a conversation around what is happening to students, also experiences of students, not only in the larger, the wider cityscape, but also within the university. And following that, we saw a large number of movements or campaigns, some small, some large, some issue based, starting from university campuses. So we saw um, the hashtag hook color up, hashtag ain't no Cinderella, hashtag pads against sexism, or like bigger campaigns like Pinjratur, all talking about different aspects of gendered violence within the campus. This also right after the case, what happened was UGC, which is the University Grants Commission, a larger body which governs how universities operate, started a task force uh, to review this specific issue. And it came to be known as the Saksham Committee. And the report that came out of the committee was called the Saksham Report. And uh, I'm sure Gita will agree with me uh, when I say this. And I think when we look at uh, the issue of sexual violence in academia globally, I think it is one of the most exemplary reports produced. And I highly, highly recommend people to read it, especially in the South Asian context. It is one of the first reports which kind of speaks about sexual violence uh, or institutional violence from the perspective of giving uh, women and people from marginalized communities autonomy and uh, and freedom and, and talk so strongly against patriarchal protectionism, against securitization, and absolutely brilliantly lays out uh, not only the context and the premise of the context, but also plausible solutions in terms of how committees and investigations should be carried out or how sensitization should be carried out. I think Gita knows much more about it. So I'm going to pass it on to her to talk more about that. I think, uh, you know, remarkable thing about the Saksham report, which became the standard actually for a lot of uh, uh, gender sensitization programs in Indian universities, was that it dealt with gender discrimination and did not restrict itself to what we call sexual harassment and what gets called also gender-based violence. Yeah. So the Saksham report is actually extremely important because it covers questions of gender discrimination also. When did this report come very handy in my experience, for example, on our campus in the Mumbai University, young girl students were asking for equal access to library and uh, the university gave an equal access 24-7 to everyone. Except what was happening is because of the hostel restrictions on time, the hostel girls were not able to access the library. And we actually, they agitated and they fought their movement. Saksham report came handy at that time because Saksham clearly states that you cannot constrain a girl student in trying to be protectionist. So this entire idea of that we are trying to protect you, therefore we will put you in, into hostels and we will restrict your movement is something that actually is spoken about in Saksham quite extensively amongst other things like how we need to work on syllabi, we need to work on pedagogy. So Saksham is actually very comprehensive. It doesn't necessarily deal only with sexual harassment or gender-based violence. But you know what, now, as Adrija spoke about the University Grants Commission, after Bhavri Devi, it took almost 16 years, okay, for an, a legislation to be passed, which is now called the Sexual Prevention and Redressal of Sexual Harassment at Workplace. It took 16 long years for that legislation to come. But I would still say, think that the legislation which came was actually because of the women's movement. It's not as if the state, see, it's not like the 70s decade where the UN decided that it's a decade for women. So in India, for example, a lot of women started looking at institutions and came out with another classic report, which was called Towards Equality. Now, once again, the women, uh, women's movement contributed immensely to the making of this legislation, which is called the Posh Act in, in India. This legislation 
keeps the principles of the Indian Penal Code intact, criminalizes sexual harassment, makes it into a, an, a criminal offense, which it was not hitherto. So now what happens is this Sexual Harassment Act also mandates all institutions and organizations to work at their level rather than overload the judiciary system to work at their level to create mechanisms that will address concerns about both gender discrimination and more particularly sexual harassment, gender-based violence. So after the act, which was passed in 2013, it took about three, four years for the uh, UJC guidelines to come in, which is the University Guidance Commission, which are regulations, which all higher education institutions like the universities have to follow. Now, what does it do actually? It's very interesting. For me, first thing that it does is it defines workplace very differently because the university is technically for the student is not a workplace. For the student is not an employee there. So what the UGC guidelines do is bring students within the access of this uh, law and in the regulation. That's one very important thing that it does. It also mandates that every organization should have a committee called the internal committee to look into sexual harassment complaints. Interestingly, it suggests or mandates five members at least in the UK or in the US where it could be one person doing the investigation. Here, what happens is it's five people. The presiding officer of the top level of this committee has to be a woman. You have to have two external members. So this mechanism exists along with another body suggested, which is the women's development cell, which conducts programs on uh, gender awareness, which conducts programs on gender, what we call sensitization, which is expected to also work closely with NGOs and other institutions and also to bring in a culture of sensitization, a less patriarchal, less misogynist culture. Can you explain that concept of gender sensitization? Because I think it's a uniquely yeah. Indian um, so, term. So, yeah, so I was trying to actually look this up and I realized that one of the first places that it really formally appears is in the Saksham report. So I think it is actually an effort and attempt to build feminist consciousness, feminist awareness, you know, on uh, how uh, patriarchy operates, how misogyny works. So the idea of this idea of gender sensitization is that the entire community, men, women, young, old, need to become aware of uh, the kind of patriarchal cultures and worlds that we live in. So this idea of gender sensitization is basically consciousness raising. So now what we have from 2016 onwards or 2013 to 16 uh, from the act to the UGC university regulations is that you have a, a statutory legislation in place and you have institutional mechanisms in place. And in both, in, the, in both of these, you have the women's movement playing a very, very important role. It is not something that the state uh, gave. Uh, to the women. It was part and parcel of a struggle of the women's movement. Uh, so this, these availability of these mechanisms becomes actually a great step forward. Gita, what kinds of problems are there in implementing these structures? There are severe problems, for example, in the constitution of these internal committees. Okay, what we need to understand is these bodies are actually nominated bodies. So it's actually the institute head who is, which could be a vice chancellor, which could be a principal of a college, who is actually making these committees. The internal committees require a presiding officer to be a senior woman professor. Very often in my experience, and I'm not talking about GS Cash kind of experience, I'm talking about being in a state university where we have 750 colleges. Yeah. So it becomes, and, and you don't have that many women, you don't have women in very senior professor positions, right? 
it becomes extremely difficult to constitute an internal committee. On paper, it looks lovely. But actually, in implementation, it becomes a very, very big challenge actually to find them. So then you go further down and you say, all right, so it can even be a senior professor. It can be a mid-level professor, woman. It can be a younger woman. But as you do that, in a very power-driven academia, uh, what happens is the IC can very often lose its autonomy and its uh, uh, and its teeth basically to do uh, justice to the to the aggrieved person who comes. So it sounds as if having the internal committees has actually exposed some of the other inequalities, uh, gender inequalities in universities, and that there are relatively few senior women academics. You've talked then, Gita, about the mechanisms that are available in Indian universities to address gender-based violence. Are there any any other mechanisms? These are internal mechanisms available to any employee or student of the university. But, I mean, this combines or goes along with the fact that you could actually go and file a first information report to the police. So, in principle, that is available to you. Adrija, can you tell us about the GS CASH, the Gender Sensitization Committee Against Sexual Harassment? So GS Cash was something right after the Vishakha guidelines happened in 1997. Students, lawyers, activists, people from the feminist movements kind of started thinking about how we can apply that within, within the university. And this led to the development of GS Cash. It was a product of activism. It was a product of love. It was a product of struggle, uh, a product of centering empathy and care and thinking about different forms of restorative justice and how to bring that within the university space and not only create uh, a mechanism to deal with sexual harassment, but also create larger changes of culture. And I think why it is important to mention that is because this conversation was started there in 1997. And these conversations are exactly the same conversations that we are having globally currently. So how does the GS cash structure differ from the internal complaints committee structure? In terms of GS Cash, again, it is it is quite similar to uh, the ICC or the Internal Complaints Committee model that Gita was talking about, but there are a few differences in the in the GS Cash. Anybody can file a complaint, so it can be students, members of staff, visitors. So anybody who's basically within that that purview of universe the of the campus space. So that is one thing. Second is also that it provides it not only registers complaint but it also provides support. So if the student needs basic support, so considering considering an environment which lacks health and well-being support, which lacks mental health support, in many cases, we see that GS Cash becoming that institution where either they are providing that support or directing because they are working with several other people within the movement, uh, several organizations, collectives, so directing people to sources where, we, where they can get that support. If a student decided to file a police complaint, we would very often see that members of GS Cash either going with the with the student to register a complaint, to register an, an FIR with the police, or helping them with legal information, going with uh, survivors to court hearings. And this was particularly uh, important for me because when I came to this country first and experienced, uh, I mean, I was dealing with my first case and the university said, uh, asked the survivor to go and register a complaint to the police, but provided no help, absolutely no help, no direction. And this is an international student who has no idea on how the criminal justice system works in the UK, but was provided no help by the institution. So in that case, I think it's important to mention that the GS Cash does provide this kind of support as well. But the other one of the main differences in uh, between the GS Cash and the ICC, the representatives of GS Cash were elected and not nominated. So they had elected members of student, elected members of staff, uh, people from the students' union, workers' union, uh, the staff union. And so it was an elected committee. And the committee would receive complaints. They would carry out investigations. And then they would develop a report, which was then handed with recommendations to the university. And uh, they were not always actually very carceral forms of, you know, disciplinary actions. Uh, they were often very focused around restorative justice, care and empathy. 
And, and in the Saksham report, I mean, the Saksham report actually mentions the GS cash model as an exemplary model to follow uh, in terms of dealing with sexual harassment uh, within the university. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mechanism that we can definitely, when we think about looking at sexual harassment within workspaces globally, I think it's a mechanism that we can, uh, that we can look at. We are definitely, as a part of the account for this campaign, we've definitely been trying to ask UK universities to kind of broaden their horizon and kind of think about uh, mechanisms such as the GS Cash for the UK as well. And one of the reasons why uh, I think it is very interesting and but also very easy to implement the GS Cash in the UK is because of colonial and imperial legacies where, the, for example, like the University of Delhi was built on the same structures as the University of London. So something that works for a university in, in, in India can almost be copied page by page for an univers- university in the UK because our structures are same. If you're actually talking about like, you know, we're in this phase where we talk every university in the UK about decolonization, but decolonization does not essentially mean like reading two authors from the global South and say that we have decolonized. It's actually learning and actively like giving these voices space, finding solutions. And it is also essential because some of the most progressive work around this is, is happening in places like uh, you know, India, Brazil, Chile, South Africa, Nigeria. And these voices are often like completely lost in like larger global, both activism and research around this area. And as you say, that, that really progressive work has come about because of the activism of students and faculty and administrative staff. And maybe now is the time to, to ask about what are some of the difficulties in implementing some of the really progressive structures that you've got going in India. Uh, Geeta, would you like to start on that one? Yes. So I sort of agree with Adrija that the the Jawaharlal Nehru University is a very, uh, very rich university in terms of its uh, cultural cultural history of movements, uh, students' movements, a very, very critical academic mass of people. So the kind of model that came up there became the model for the rest of India and could definitely, I agree with Adrija, become a, a way of speaking globally. But I think what I want to actually point out very specifically is that was organically emerging from the movement or from various movements, GDS cash model. Now, the insights of that got taken into the internal committee. So whatever Adrija says in terms of what the, what the GS cash is supposed, did, in take, helping the uh, the agreed person, the, the internal committee is on paper supposed to mandate it to do all of that. Question is, why does it not happen? It doesn't happen because it is coming as a mandatory body from above. Okay, it is only a recommending body. It is not an implementing body, which also GS Cash was. But I think the thing that is lacking now, you have a great legislation. The thing that is lacking is how do you insert a feminist consciousness? I would strongly say, how do you insert a consciousness into every presiding officer, in every internal committee, in every higher education institution in India, that the first principle of actually addressing a complaint of sexual harassment is to give the benefit of doubt to the person who's complaining. And not to meet that person with a sense of doubt. And what happens in a lot of internal committees is that the girl or whoever it is who comes is always put in a question doubt that you must have done something wrong, that there's something wrong with the way you are reporting things. You know, the legislation is fantastic. The regulations are fantastic. But the implementation problem is, I think, a problem of a critical consciousness. How do you produce a critical consciousness which can then infuse these mechanisms? Yeah? Which is the girl, which is the woman who will get questioned and doubted more than another woman? Typically, a woman who goes from a low caste with a complaint to an IC, if she feels courageous enough and brave enough and confident enough to actually go and complain, is always met with doubt. So I feel that it's the problem with implementation is also a problem, of course, with the structure that it is an imposed body. It's not an elected organic body. But I think the problem lies deeper. The problem is with 
lack of consciousness, the lack of a critical awareness. You know, we seem to think that a feminist consciousness is sort of uh, becoming much more popular and is there everywhere. But this became evident in the hashtag MeToo movement. Yeah. Can we move on to discuss the MeToo movement? What impact did it have on anti-gender based violence activism in universities in India, Adrija? Sure. Just to give you an idea of how the Me Too movement developed in India was that when when the larger discourse of Me Too started um, globally, Raya Sarkar, um, who was a young law student in California at that point of time, on Facebook uh, posted a list of uh, senior male professors who had allegedly harassed women. And this was a completely anonymous list. Obviously, there were, you know, there were controversies around the list, around, you know, questions of why, uh, why this witch hunt, of course, as we saw, saw globally happening with so many online testimonies, you know, why anonymity, why were people talking about their abuse so many years down the line? But this list was an extraordinarily important moment, because why I think is that often academia is not considered as a site of violence in the larger public discourse, you know, and, and not, neither does it consider itself as an agent of oppression. While it is, it is a space with extremely feudal relationships. It is a space with extraordinary ordinary power dynamics where a member of staff has, and especially when it comes to like research students or students of sciences, you know, there, there are extraordinary power dynamics between, uh, between the students and the members of staff. So these were the questions which started coming up. And like, you know, there were, there were debates around due process versus naming and shaming, uh, which was not only something which was happening in India, but it was happening globally. It was also around the access of due process that actually Gita was uh, talking about. And Gita has actually written a really good piece on, on Me Too in Academia, where she says that, and I'm going to quote you here, Gita, with your permission, uh, the, the fact that like, you know, even uh, the presumption that a Dalit student or a Muslim student has equal access to justice as an upper class, upper caste woman within academia is quote unquote mis- misplaced optimism because it just doesn't happen. What I was most interested in during this time was that, like, you know, while on one hand we have great mechanisms, like, you know, like GS Cash ICs on paper, not to romanticize it again. So the question that I was interested in when looking at the Me Too movement, both as an academic and an activist who was involved in helping survivors write some of these online testimonies, was why are actually students resorting to online mechanisms? In that process, we actually ended up speaking to a lot of survivors to kind of, you know, understand this issue specifically from the survivor's point of view. What was their needs? Why were they doing it? And one of the things that kept coming up again and again was that they have no faith in due process. They have no faith in these mechanisms. What was interesting is that many of the people who we were speaking to, on one hand, spoke very highly about GS Cash and the need for having a mechanism like GS Cash, but also supported the list at the same time. And they were not young feminists who devalued due process, but, you know, there were students who acknowledged that uh, due process always did not work the way it should because of power dynamics, hierarchies, ideas of shame attached to any form of sexual and gender-based violence. Like, for example, I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, like, you know, a person who I spoke to uh, who identified as Dalit, queer and disabled spoke of, like, this horrific experience of harassment in JNU. But once she spoke about her experience, she was completely isolated by her peers. Uh, Others also blamed her harassment on her disability. She confided in her supervisor, who then broke confidentiality and spoke about her experiences to others in the department. And this person became labeled as the person who had been harassed. And this person then ended up actually having to leave the course and not finishing her PhD because of the fact that she had actually gone and registered a complaint. The second thing I wanted to point out is this idea of justice. Adrija, the people you spoke to about their involvement in the hashtag MeToo movement, what did they want to happen as a result of their disclosures? Whenever we spoke to all these survivors who came out with these online testimonies and asked them what they want, not one of them spoke about a criminal procedure. 
not one of them spoke about punishment from for their perpetrators they reiterated again and again some form of therapy some form of restorative justice mechanisms but not a single one of them actually spoke about punishment the way that the criminal justice procedure thinks about punishment and this is very important uh, not only in, in the indian context but in the global context in talking about sexual harassment because one of the first responses from people in authority when it comes to dealing with any forms of gendered violence is either lock them up hang the rapists put them behind bars and this is something that survivors intrinsically don't want they want something which is non carceral they want to see more inclusive changes so that this cycle of perpetration ends at some point what were the other key findings from talking to survivors so first that all of them said is that they thought that their stories were isolated like something that all of them pointed out was this process of sitting down writing testimonies and sharing experiences gave them catharsis and healing and that was their form of justice and the second they said that for the first time many of these survivors were believed many of them did not actually register a complaint because they weren't even believed by their peers their colleagues their comrades their families but this time suddenly when they said that i have experienced this people said i hear you i see you i'm with you and i believe you and this was so important this is something that due process doesn't provide this is something as geeta was provide saying that a feminist consciousness a movement a collective a sisterhood can provide what was important is that many of these people came into the came into me too as just spectators of the of the feminist movement through this they actually entered the feminist movement many of them started feminist collectives in their universities many of them started campaigns many of them started uh, support structures in many interviews i get asked that you know what was the result of the me too movement in india and it's a question that i intrinsically hate because movements don't have results it's not corporate structures but one of the things that definitely happened with me too i can say in india is that it provided the movement with many new comrades with many new people to carry this conversation forward and it is only a starting of the conversation there are many many battles to fight one more thing that i wanted to quickly point out was that one of the reasons why women wanted to speak out was that they said that they don't want other women to go through what they went through what they said was one of the reasons why they were speaking out on a platform which went beyond borders was because this perpetration was also happening beyond borders geeta what do you see as significant about the me too movement in india what i think was important about the hashtag #me too movement in india was we were a country where the women's movement uh, successfully had produced or uh, helped introducing a very enlightened piece of legislation in some way we had the history of the gs cash and all of that suddenly what did the hashtag me too movement do it told you it's not working it's exactly what the towards equality report did in the 70s and told the state that gender equity has not been achieved here we feminists were beginning to sort of stay in a place where we said you know we've got the due process in place and there was this young set of women coming out there and saying it doesn't work now this peculiarly in india set up a huge divide and this is what i've written about a huge divide between the women who had worked for due process yeah who were the role models and the ideals of the younger feminists who were all younger women and the due process was not working so when the younger women came out you know using and i specifically want to talk about the hashtag they used the digital media and that was also something that the older and i would definitely think there is a generational aspect to it though i've been criticized for that and said no 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 there isn't a generational aspect i definitely read a generational aspect in the whole list and statement controversy which is what happened in india because the older women who were very hard to get this due process in place uh, came out with a statement within hours of the list 
to damn the younger women and say, you're not using due process. So this led to an escalation of the technologies, the pragmatisms of, uh, you know, the movement, the politics of it. So this entire divide between the older and the younger women feminists actually will take a long time to heal. So it is not, I don't see it just as a problem between due process and due process not working. It is a lot of other things not working. For example, as Adija was saying, Rasarkar brought the Dalit question out. And the Dalit girls question was not just a question against upper caste men. The Dalit girls question was also what does she do when a Dalit professor male is the perpetrator? Then what you do? And we are caught in an intersectional politics, which is so complex. Really, it's very difficult to sometimes resolve it because a lot of people that got implicated in the hashtag movement are people who would actually be your allies otherwise. They would be uh, progressive academics. They would be academics whose work you're using actually to resist the status quo. So the big question that came to us, to some of us, was now what do we do with them? Do we stop teaching their work? Do we stop using their work? What is our feminist politics going to take us? So I genuinely believe that the hashtag MeToo movement in India definitely created a divide amongst feminists who had worked for due process, who had got the legislation, and those who pointed out and said, it's not working. And if it is not working, it's important for us to stand up and look at what is going wrong rather than to damn the uh, women who came out and said, you know, and they, they all, all of the hashtag me so many of them argued saying whether it's Raya or others who said, we are not trying to shame anyone. We are naming. Yeah. And naming is important. We want to be heard as Adrija was saying. So there was no attempt to shame because, you know, in the political context that we were living in, all of us are very scared of uh, supporting lynch mobs and supporting uh, very regressive ways of uh, doing politics by shaming people. No, that's not a part of feminist politics, though the earlier women's movement also used strategies of shaming yeah, the perpetrator. I think also it was a point of a digital shift. The way the uh, girls, younger people were comfortable with the digital media and they wanted to use it for themselves, their expression, their, they did not want to actually look, as Adrija was saying, for punishment but for looking for a space for catharsis. One of the most important things that came out also in debates around the hashtag MeToo was there were a lot of accounts of uh, students who, uh, women who had been part of so-called consensual relationships with advisors. And they came back and said, after 20 years or after 10 years, they came back and said, I think I was abused. I didn't know that. So there was a lot of question about, are you feminists becoming moral polices? You know, are you trying to control the erotic charge and in intellectual relationships between an advisor and a student? So it produced so much discourse of such a complex kind that you had to eventually say that a relationship between a professor and a student is a relationship of power. And there is no question of us talking, not allowing but making space of so-called consensual relationships when there is a very strong power aspect to this relationship. So the hashtag MeToo movement was actually a very complex one. I think there have been immense learnings for us in the Indian context and I think from the global context also. That's really fascinating. You, you draw out all the ripples that have uh, resulted from the MeToo movement and the complexity within feminism as well as in the activism against gender-based violence. Adrija, from your perspective as an activist and as someone studying Indian activism from the UK, what do you think the UK can learn from the Indian experience of hashtag MeToo? One of the very important things is that we are grappling with in the UK and we can definitely learn from the debates that were happening in India at that point of time is the question of A, relationships, and B, intersectionality, because I know that there are so many universities right now who are thinking or writing relationship agreements. And what does relationship agreement entail 
what are consensual relationships, what are not consensual relationships. Intersectionality uh, and the questions around class, caste, gender, sexuality uh, that came up and was debated and written about at length during uh, the Me Too movement in India. And I think why that is an important question to consider in the UK is that very often, because UK has a huge population of and because of the lack of understanding of A, the cultural backgrounds, the connotations of patriarchy, very often their experiences of violence and their narratives of violence, violence is lost in UK academia. So I'll give you an example. In a very reputed university, the helpline for intimate partner violence was a shelter for Muslim women. So directly saying that it is women from Muslim communities who face intimate partner violence and hence this is where you should go for help. Uh, the way it is dealt with, the, the way that students are asked to report to the police rather than to the university means that international students can't report because A, they don't have, have an idea of the criminal justice system, but B, B, they're on visas. Universities very consciously delaying the procedure, especially for master's students, uh, so because they know that they are going to go within a year and it, then after that, it doesn't matter. Also, specific understanding of power dynamics and cultural dynamics and patriarchy. In one of our experiences, uh, a student from South Asia basically said that I want to be anonymous in my complaint because if my parents come to know that I was involved in a case of sexual harassment, they will withdraw me from the university tomorrow. They will fly me out and they will get me married. University did not understand that implication of that and refused to actually provide anonymity and safeguard to the survivor so they could actually file and go through a process of complaint. So what do you think the UK has to learn from the Indian experience about intersectionality? One of the things that I have learned is coalition building. So we are always working, students, members of staff, um, unions, trade unions, lawyers, activists, collectives, they all come together and like the GS Cash, the product of that coalition. What happened after Me Too, the support that came from everywhere is a product of that coalition. But we don't very often see that in the UK. It is happening. It is definitely happening. But I think we need to see more of these coalitions, more of these people coming together. The third thing is that in India, we also see that the people within the feminist movement or within universities are not only talking about what is happening just within the universities. They're also fighting a capitalist, neoliberal, fascist government. And the policies that are being put forward by this government is a product of their patriarchal thinking. And the feminist movement is actively resisting that. And hence, the state is also completely like actively, like you can see the backlash against the feminist movement coming directly from the state. You don't see that to this extent in the UK, because in the UK, very often I see that the state first very often co-ops the feminist struggle to say that, great, look, we are doing this. We are so feminist. We support the movement. But also you can be a feminist in the UK and not, not be actually against the state. Coming to our last question now. Um, you have both touched on, on this throughout. What would you see as the challenges for feminist academics in working against gender-based violence in universities? Peter, perhaps you'd start on that. There's so much that I also want to speak about. Just very quickly, one of the things that we picked up in the hashtag MeToo movement times yeah, was introspection again for the feminist movement. Uh, I think that is global which is that, you know, for the longest period, we tended to think we knew that men of other progressive movements uh, who are, as I was saying, allies, uh, we knew that they were capable of extreme sexism, you know, misogyny, but we tended to cover it up because of our larger politics. And the challenge exists even today, that do I name a Dalit? male perpetrator considering that I live in such an upper caste society do I want to take action against and if I am the feminist you know sitting on the IC as a presiding officer and if I'm listening to this case what do I do do I want this you know Muslim male professor to actually go down in what I know happens to be a very complex 
mechanism of the dominant Hindu um, masculinity that we are living in. And there is a whole movement to remove marginal dissenting voices. Then what do I do with my gender politics at that time? You know, it is very important for us. To first, I think we all began understanding and recognizing that just because a man is good to me or looks to me like, my God, he's never capable of doing that. Yeah, to recognize that, yes, he is, you know, and also what action seems to you to be all right can be extremely objectionable to somebody else. So a lot of girls who actually also came out of the hashtag movement, hashtag me Too movement were, you know, liberated sex positive uh, women. And the whole question of if you are that, then you almost invite this and now are you having a problem with it? So a lot of very complex issues came out about our own understandings of who is a perpetrator. The perpetrator was no more this man outside of our politics, but the perpetrator was very often a man from within our politics. Yeah. So your question on the feminist academic first for me begins with what do we do with our disciplines? In India, for example, we have the women's studies, which have developed as almost like an independent discipline which is, you know, combines philosophy, psychology, history, economics, yeah, and works as an independent discipline of women's studies, where a lot of feminist research and work happens. But my challenge, for example, in sociology has been also in terms of how do you reimagine sociology from feminist perspectives? Why is it that we are not working with our own disciplines? We need to bend. A lot of my work comes from that perspective. How do we bend our disciplines? One very important thing to work with is to work with our disciplines. How do we generate a pedagogy within the classroom, which is, which sort of upholds our feminist values of participatory, co-constitutive, transgressive uh, knowledge production? Yeah. How do we do that? Because you have to work with your discipline. You have to work with the women's studies. You have to do all the counseling and mentoring work for students, raising consciousness, the whole idea of academic and activism comes together in a very, very complex praxis. But this work of running the women's development cell and the internal uh, committees, I think puts the burden only on the feminists, women, and there aren't that many in the academia. So I feel the challenge is that we are getting exhausted. A lot of us are getting deeply exhausted and sometimes saying that I'm here to actually read, write, teach. And I'm doing so much of this, which is not, it's not a question of this or that, but I'm just saying that we are very few of us and very often we as feminists ourselves turn away from these, these challenges, these roles. And I, this has been my experience that as I was saying, I don't have anybody to give the bait into. I've done my bit for about four or five years. Somebody else takes over. Yeah. So you're kind of exhausting yourself going on, you know, with this entire uh, process. So I see the challenges of a feminist are various. I think it is about how we teach our disciplines, how we do our research, how do we bring our feminist intersectional standpoints and consciousness into what we do. Uh, but it's also about mentoring. It's also about generally consciousness building in the community. And it is more specifically about how to handle survivors of sexual violence. Yeah. So I find it exhausting, to say the least. Yes, and I know you're not alone. And there's certainly <laughs> chapters in, in the book where other feminists are talking about the tremendous work, emotional work, intellectual work oh, yes. that, that feminist academics and um, activists are doing. Adrija, was there anything that you wanted to add to that idea of what the challenges are for feminist academic? I think I would have to reiterate that it is an exhausting process. It can be a very lonely process, a depressing process, because there are more losses than wins. We need to build these infrastructures of support, of sisterhood, of care, where we can lean on each other, where if I can't get up and do the work one day, there is somebody to pass that baton to, and that work doesn't stop, and that's how you build build a movement and that's how the movement has always been built and we've, we've learned that from our past you know from uh, in the feminist struggles in the past so how do we now then implement that in our current struggle uh, is something that we all need to introspect 
it is not about individuals and individuals burning out, but it is about us carrying on this struggle as a collective. And then how do we build the foundations of that? Second challenge, and I think all of us who are working in this space are introspecting and reflecting on this. How do we kind of build mechanisms which are survivor-centered, which focus on what survivor needs are, which are intersectional, feminist, non-carceral, which centers care and empathy and, and love? What do these mechanisms entail? But how do we move beyond just mechanisms to create larger cultural changes? The third thing is, I think, one of the major challenges, and, and this, of course, I mean, I was speaking about before in India, is that the feminists are not only fighting against a patriarchal institution, uh, they're also fighting against a patriarchal state. And they are facing immense repression. We know of our feminist comrades being arrested because they stood up and fought against a Brahminical patriarchal state. In places like India, the people from the feminist movement are not only fighting a patriarchal institution, they're also fighting a Brahminical patriarchal fascist state and tremendous amount of state repression uh, and facing backlash in at every single moment of time. Sexual violence within academic institutions is a global problem. And it's time we start developing global solutions to these, uh, to these problems. Uh, and I think it is only through this and learning from each other that we can actually create these solutions which are sustainable and inclusive and feminist. And finally, the last thing is that I think one of the biggest struggles to to the movement is this aggressive marketization and neoliberalization of education, uh, which is making academic spaces more and more elite, uh, available to only a few people. And there is, we see that in most universities, the most precarious members of staff are people of color, are women of color, are queer bodies, are minority bodies people who, are, uh, who have the most amount of teaching load, people who are doing most amount of care work. The students with the highest number of dropout rates are students coming from minority communities. So unless we talk about the violence of marketization and, uh, and neoliberalization of the education system, I think that is, that is a form of gendered violence. And I think we need to recognize that, that that is in itself a feminist struggle. Thank you so much to both of you for being with us today and sharing your insights about the wonderful work you're doing on your campuses. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We hope it sparked off some ideas for your work to end gender-based violence in higher education, whether that's research work, activism, or work in an administrative role in higher education. If you'd like to engage more, visit collaboratingforchange.weebly.com where you can listen to the next episode of this podcast.